Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Folks, this is a podcast that's purpose is for Georgia judges or anybody else who might be interested in what goes on in the courtroom. Please understand that we are Georgia-focused, meaning that we are going to focus our attention on issues that arise under Georgia law, but occasionally we will get into some subjects of common interest. And we really appreciate you folks listening. And as we go to the studio audience, we ask, please hold your applause till the end. All right, now to the studio. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we have a special guest and a special topic. Honestly, I have wanted to cover this topic since we began the podcast, honestly, because I want to know the answers to the questions. So, Tane, why don't you tell everybody what we're doing today? Sure. Today we're going to do, as uh, as Wade said, a special topic on the 10-ish burning questions for the Georgia Department of Corrections, or the DOC. You know, when we were when we were formulating this this podcast, we said, let's do 10 burning questions. And then 10 became this sub question and this what if question. Next thing you know, it kind of became a couple of pages. So amazing how that happens. It's funny. (laughs) Um, Today we have with us Mr. Stan Cooper. Uh, Stan is with us and he has had an amazing career of service with the state of Georgia and a couple of different entities and a couple of different iterations of current entities. Stan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. I feel like uh, you and I have known each other for a while, so I feel like I know you, but why don't you fill everybody in on what you're doing now and sort of how you got here? Well, currently I serve as a special assistant to the Commissioner of Corrections and really focusing on uh, things, uh, our relationship with the courts, as you all know, along with uh, still working on criminal justice reform issues and things like that. Uh, prior to that, I was actually the director of probation until 2013 when I retired and have came back and worked uh, part-time doing what we're doing now and really excited about where we're headed in the Department of Corrections. So you used to deal with the people outside the wire, now you're dealing with the people inside the wire. That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> you used to ha- deal, with, uh, deal with a little over 160,000 probationers and 220 judges at the time, and, uh, and now I'm dealing with uh, inmates and still dealing with the courts, which I really enjoy. You know, for somebody who's allegedly retired, you sure do seem to be available and working a lot. I know you do a lot on your phone, but you have been kind enough to come to Augusta a number of times. I've seen you in and around things at the legislature. I mean, there's been lots of times that you've been pretty busy. So, Stan, there are going to be some people like my mom who listens to the podcast <laughs> who are not at all familiar with what the DOC is and how that might be different than a local jail and things like that. Mm-hmm. So can we start with a pretty elemental explanation of the Department of Corrections and how, what you do and basically how that's different from other things people might be familiar with? Well, the DOC is responsible for numerous things, mainly, uh, first and foremost, is our mission is to protect the public from uh, from the inmates that we're we're charged with supervising. Uh, We do that uh, through um, a a lot of different ways, but mainly through having professional staff who are every day come in and do that difficult job. We maintain, we manage all the state prisons and other uh, alternative uh, uh, units within the Department of Corrections, uh, but our primary focus is is protecting the public from those individuals. We're also in the business, though, of taking inmates and and giving them the tools when they're released to be successful. Approximately 97% of the inmates that's currently in the system are at one day going to be released. 
Um, we know that. So we do, and our staff does a great job with getting those inmates ready to go back out into the community. Stan, how many prisons do we have in the state of Georgia? Currently, we're operating 34 state prisons. Um, we also are responsible for, pri- for private prisons in Georgia. Uh, we have 21 contracted uh, county camps, as we call them. And then we uh, operate 13 transitional centers, seven probation detention centers or those alternatives that you all uh, send for those short bursts of incarceration for probationers. We operate six RSAT programs, uh, which are residential substance abuse treatment programs. And then uh, last but certainly not least, um, we have two integrated treatment facilities. Those are uh, mental, for mental health coupled with substance abuse issue centers for, uh, for probationers to, to be sentenced to, and we operate those two. Now, to be clear, you are dealing with felony people serving felony sentences. That's correct. If they were a misdemeanor sentence, they'd be in a local county jail. If they're pre-trial, they'd be local county jail. But you were you were dealing with people who have been convicted or pled guilty or whatever, felony to felony offenses. That's correct. All right. So when you say that they, the private probations, uh, excuse me, the private prison facilities, how many of there are there? There are four in Georgia. Okay, but you have other prison camps that are also run by DOC, or are they private as well? They, they all they all are ran by DOC, and the county camps are basically contracted to handle uh, minimum to medium risk offenders uh, out in the uh, different counties across the state. So out of the, I think you said 34 prisons, is that what you said? That's correct. How many are the different levels of supervision? I mean, do you? How many different levels are there of supervision? There's actually three different levels. There's a close, which is your highest risk offenders. There's a medium, and then minimum. Uh, currently, we operate in five close security prisons in Georgia. Uh, as you know, with criminal justice reform. Um, and and really focusing in and keeping those offenders behind the wire that we are that high, that are high risk. The prison system is now you know dealing with offenders who are staying in longer terms because of that, and so we have uh, those those three levels of supervision. If I am an inmate, how, what's the difference to to an inmate from an inmate's perspective? What's the difference between the three levels? Is it well, it's, it's, it's really the amount of attention they get and also the amount of uh, programming they get. You know, you would think with a high-risk offender that, you know, you just want to keep them, and we do. We want to keep them uh, in, in where they're, they're, we're watching those offenders, but we're also in the, in the, the realm of giving them the tools that to really uh, take and, and get them ready once, if they are ever released, get them ready to go back out in the communities. Let's, can we talk a little bit about how those inmates get classified? I mean, it's my understanding that most of the inmates come that come into the system first go to Georgia Diagnostic and Classification Center down at Jackson. Is that, that's, is that right? That's partially right. Yeah, and then um, some go to Coastal, I think. Yeah, or? Basically, all male, um, all male inmates that uh, come into the Department of Corrections, with the exception of a few, and, mm-hmm. and a few uh, go to Coastal. Normally, those are inmates who are sentenced to two years or less who meet certain criteria. Uh, in that where there's some rehabilitative services down there, they will go directly to Coastal based on that. But all other males go through 
uh, Georgia Diagnostics and Classification Prison in Jackson. All the females go straight straight to Lee Arendelle State Prison, which is our female facil- diagnostics facility. Right. Now what, yeah, what happens there? Basically, what happens there is, is that during the diagnostics process, uh, everything that you can think of is looked at. We, we look at, of course, number one, their risk levels. Uh, number two, their mental health, also medical needs. Uh, they're assessed based on all of that. And um, it's, a, it's a process that takes about 14 days to complete um, if you will, as far as the, the length there. And then once all those things are taken in consideration, placement is based on uh, the risk level, needs levels of that offender. Does it have anything to do with where they're from or where they live or where family lives? We try to, uh, when we can, we try to get inmates as close to their homes as we can. We do have a policy that we don't place them uh, within two counties if, if it's possible, uh, unless they're in a transitional type setting. Um, but we try not to do that. As you can imagine, you've got all sorts of issues when that happens, but we try to get them as close so the family can stay engaged with those inmates. We found over time that really is helpful uh, with that. But we also are very cognizant of the fact that um, when you when an inmate's close to home, you know, you've got victims issues that you can run into, so we're, we're constantly looking at that. How many um, how many inmates do we currently have overall that are in the custody of uh, of DOC? Currently, we have uh, as of a couple of days ago, uh, fifty three thousand seven hundred seventy three mm-hmm. uh, in custody, and then we on top of that, we're responsible for about thirty four hundred probationers that are in PDCs, but detention centers, and um, you know RSAP programs. Out of that, out of the, the inmate population, uh, approximately 3,800 are female offenders. Okay. And do we still have a, a relatively high percentage in comparison to other states of incarcerated individuals or, pe- or at least people under supervision in we, Georgia? We are. We are we're always around fourth or fifth in the nation as far as the number of inmates incarcerated. Do you? I remember when I used to speak to some some groups in in town, and and one of the things they would want to know is, for example, like the educational background of the inmates, the gender of inmates, and so there was a really good website at one point that the DOC maintained that you could fairly easily, and the public could check this out on a moment's notice. Is that still up and running as far as you know? It is. We have a public website that's uh, updated every night, actually, with inmates. And you can actually look up uh, inmates who's, who's incarcerated. Uh, that website is, uh, is gdc.ga.gov. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, feel free. And it's very uh, – it's got a lot of good information for the public in it. Yeah, it had things like with the average age and that's education. Correct. And there, there was a lot of information. Right. Yeah, and for our judges who who are asked to go out and speak to groups, a lot of times they you know they want to know that kind of statistical information, and that is a great resource, good website for us. Yeah, Pro- prosecutors use it quite often to locate inmates when they're uh, two. We found over time, so it's it's really been good for them as well. All right, Stan. So the real reason we've called you here is that we have polled some of our good friends and colleagues on the Superior Court bench. And we've asked them to identify some of the old wives' tales, the things that inmates tell us, the things that mamas tell us, the things that lawyers tell us. And we want to know 
if they're true. So we had that conversation. We got a lot of responses to this. Apparently, (laughs) there's a lot of judge interest in what happens at DOC. But what's what's interesting is that we had a lot of people who rephrased a few of the same questions. You know, Mm -hmm. they, they may have added a word or changed a word, but ultimately... They wanted to to know certain things, and so we've tried to ask at least by topic certain okay. things. Now, and, and a lot of these questions, I think, also come from the inmate folklore that we hear a lot of times <laughs> told to us about. Well, when I get to DOC, right. they are going to do so and so. And if you'll put this on the form, it'll mean that, right? right. For me. Right. So anyway, <laughs> we try to get it down to ten stand, but right. it might be ten ish, okay. as Tane said earlier. <laughs> Um, so let's let's start with the first one. I'll, I'll go first, okay? Okay. Frequently, defendants who are being sentenced will ask the judge to include in their sentencing order a, and they are use some version of the word recommendation, mm-hmm. that the inmate finish his or her sentence in a transition facility. Now, we are told by inmates that if the judge will just simply put that recommendation in the sentence, that it would have a huge impact on the defendant's ability to be allowed to go to a transition facility. And, and I think you've described a little bit about what a transition facility mm-hmm. is, but they would be allowed to go to a transition facility if only the judge would recommend it. Now, let's describe to listeners, and if you don't mind, maybe because you told us how many they were, right. a transitional center, what is it? Basically, it's a, a transitional center. As I said, we have 13 in Georgia. It's a, it's a center that is really developed to prepare individuals towards the end of their sentence for release. The target population that, that in, these, in this is basically we're looking at offenders who uh, have little to no family uh, support and, 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 and other mechanisms that, that come into play with, with those types of inmates. Um, the facility couples, uh, of course, uh, counseling, reentry training, those things with the fact that they go out and get jobs. Many of them have jobs that they go out in and they start earning money. Part of that is they pay their way through the program, of course, and then they have money left over to help them get a leg up when they, they start out the door. Uh, so we found that that's, it's a very popular program amongst inmates, and uh, the, the program is, is really shown over and over again that a, at least a third of them are most likely not to come back if, if they go through a transitional setting. Would we at one point in time of our history may have called that a halfway house? Kind of. Okay. Kind of. And, and how much, I mean, you've touched on it a little bit, but I mean, how much does the judge's recommendation of that transitional center really factor into what the department is looking at? Well, we, we always encourage the judges to let us know, uh, you know, either on a sentence or some way, somehow let us know their desires. Now, with that being said, one of the things we look at in placement uh, for offenders in a, a transitional center, one is their institutional record to the time remaining on their sentence, and the need for, uh, for housing after incarceration. All those factors come into play. Along with, uh, of course, transition centers are designed towards an inmate's end of their time in, in prison. So you would not want to send, put somebody in a transitional center that still has three or four years left. So basically we target offenders for 12 to 15 months uh, out of their, their release date uh, and then uh, look at that. Now there's two ways they get in. And basically one is parole, 
the parole board will will designate certain individuals based on the fact that they're going to consider them for parole. And then, two, we have classification committees and and um, in all of our prisons. And when they look at the individual, they will also make a recommendation. And that's where really where the judge's um, recommendation comes into play for those individuals so that we look at it and say, well, Judge Paget, you know, at sentencing, really wanted this person to be looked at. And so we would take that in consideration at that point in time. But it doesn't control anything. No, it doesn't. Um, several of our judges uh, wanted you to talk about the programs that are available, the rehabilitative type programs that are available in the prison system, particularly things like GED programs, literacy, other educational programs. I know. Uh, on a lot of my sentences, I tell people that, you know, at some point during this sentence, you're required to you know, attempt to get your GED. And I'm always uh, telling them, look, you can get this while you're mm-hmm. in the prison system. But if you just expound upon that a little bit, that'd be great. Well, we're extremely proud of the work over the last uh, seven to eight years that's been done in this this arena, and, and Georgia is really leading the way in a lot of ways with with their educational programs in, in the in the in the system. Um, all of our facilities offer educational programs. All prisons have that, and 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 data really proves that they're rehabilitative and not punitive in nature. And so we're very proud of that. We also are proud of the fact that research has shown that recidivism decreases with educational programs. You know, um, in Georgia, in the general population, for instance, there was about uh, the return to prison rates about 27.66%. For those who complete a GED, theirs drops to 19.03%. So as you can see, that's quite a large uh, number. And then those who complete career and technical uh, programs, they return at the rate of only 18.6%. So we're convinced uh, that this really makes a a big difference in the inmate population. Um, We have, we offer, uh, again, GED programs uh, in all the institutions. Uh, We're very proud of that. We also offer a a lot of technical and educational uh, programs. And And tell tell folks what that would mean. What kind of stuff would they be able to to get training in while they're there? Well, they get on-the-job training. We operate uh, welding schools. That's what uh, I thought. Diesel mechanic schools. Uh, And, of course, as you know, in Georgia, that's a a huge job market in Georgia. If you could get a job in welding or diesel mechanics, you can make a good living when you get out for sure. We also we also uh, offer um, you know inmates other other technical skills. Uh, Carpenter we have uh, we actually have uh, within corrections we have programs where they build cabinets where they build woodwork. Uh, now uh, we have actually uh, down at Ware State Prison a wood shop where inmates actually make um, items and we put them up for sale down there bowls uh, chairs those things and they so that when they get actually some of the funds from that we uh, we've seen it when new judges are sworn in uh, some gavels and and things that are made by some of the inmates that are presented to the judges to kind of remind them that you know people can be rehabilitated right. and that's a good goal of what we're trying to do Stan, back in the day we always heard inmates made driver made license plates 
Is they that do. still a thing? They do. They still do. Oh, wow. okay. Still do. Not All just a not just Georgia. a myth. Yes, that's <laughs> it. And um, getting back to the, the the programs that we're we're so uh, proud of is is one, one thing. Just just to give you an idea, last year or this year actually in FY19, there's been over three thousand inmates get their GEDs this year. Wow, that's, that's fantastic. That's, that's wow. huge. That is, well, yeah. I, I commend you for those programs. I I tell inmates frequently when I'm telling them that I want them to get their GED as a part of their sentence, there aren't very many things that I can make them do that I know for a fact will help them when they get out. But if I lead that horse to water on the GED, I know it's going to help them. Right. And and, and the other thing that, that goes with that is the fact that we've got great partnerships uh, out in the community with different university systems, uh, local, um, you know, libraries, those things. And so that's what makes it work. It's actually a, a team effort uh, in that. And so we're very proud of where we're at with that. So on the same topic of recommendations from the judge, mm-hmm. we will also hear from inmates that if we would only recommend them for the RSAT program, they would have a shot of getting an RSAT. As you described earlier, it's Residential Substance Abuse Treatment, RSAT, the acronym. Is that true? Actually, we do take that, again, into consideration. Now, it's not always, uh, you know, the, the factor we're going to use, but we do want to know uh, if that's important to the judge. Doesn't, and maybe this is just a wives' tale, we had always been told that everybody gets screened for RSAT when they go through diagnostics. That is correct. We use an assessment that's, that was developed several years ago now and is validated you know, on a consistent basis in Georgia. It's called the Next Generation Assessment, NGA uh, for short. And part of that Next Generation Assessment on every inmate, they are screened for substance abuse and for RSAP programs. Okay. I'd always heard that, but I, I didn't know if, right. that was, if that was the thing. All right, so several of our judges, Tane, we're interested in discussing mental health treatment. And, and as you and I have talked about on a number of occasions, there are so many people who come in front of us who have either either mental health or substance abuse or both. Or both, right. Issues. So some of our judges wanted to know, do you have any statistics, for example, on how many inmates, it, does, does, our, does, our, does whatever our gut tells us in the courtroom, does that prove out in the in the DOC? I think it does. And, and, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's true. About 20% of our population currently have some type of mental health diagnosis. Mm. Uh, a little over 11,000 inmates right now uh, have a mental health diagnosis. Do you have the ability to offer them any treatment or is it just medication and no, we we actually offer extensive treatment uh, to our mental health population. We have uh, we have approximately thirty five total facilities that have uh, offer some type of mental health programming. Those include licensed and trained mental health counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, active uh, therapists, in addition to mental health registered nurses uh, that we employ. And I'm assuming that also starts at the diagnostic level when they first enter the system. That is correct. I mean, they're, they're, those are identified right off the back because part of their placement quite frankly uh, may be may be relative to that and that's what I was going to ask you next are those inmates in general population are they in a special housing are they in a special prison how does that work most of them 
uh, quite frankly, are in the general population, based, but it's all based on their mental health diagnosis. Those with severe mental illnesses, those can be housed in a, support, a supportive living unit or a special mental health treatment unit uh, based on their uh, specific disorder. I'm assuming people with vulnerability that might be vulnerable to general population or something like that. That's correct. So we've always been told that when I guess Hollywood told us that when an inmate is released from prison, they get a bus ticket and some amount of money. I don't know if that's even true. You're, first, you're and talking it, about Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, is that where we're going like with that? Yeah. yeah, but but I'm not even sure whether that's true. But it, do mental people with mental health conditions do they get any if they're on medication and it's been sort of determined by y'all that they need that to get through the day and not have an episode which unfortunately frequently lands them back with us. Do they get any bridge medication until they get to their new uh, living situation? They actually do. When they leave the facility, uh, they they have a 30-day supply. And and that's based on a lot of work that our staff, along with judges and others, have done over time to make sure, and mental health uh, community providers, to make sure that we have a bridge there as they leave. Uh, because we know sometimes those appointments, even though n- most of the time when they leave, th- that counselor at that prison has already helped them get an appointment out in the community somewhere. And so um, we're bra- very proud of the fact that when we s- let them go out the door, they've, they've got enough medication to hold them over till they get that. Now, to go back to your 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 question as far as what they leave with actually i guess this is the the new generation it used to you get 25 dollars on a bus ticket as you talked about now it's a debit card <laughs> when they wow. walk out the door so uh and, is it the same amount of money yeah same amount of money now however this also comes into play when inmates are leaving and they've been in um, a transitional center and they've been earning funds and things like that, they leave with that money also. Wow. And so, so so that goes on their debit card and they can take that, it with that's them? That's correct. They can take that with them and it helps them uh, get a start in the community. And is there an opportunity in some of the prisons for inmates to earn some amount of money while they're working on some of those programs you talked about earlier? There is, especially in transitional settings. And then, as I mentioned, um, you know, with our woodworking thing, you know, it's been that's something new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really has been beneficial to a lot. We hope to expand that, of course, over the years. Um, but, but you know, when they walk out the door, we try to pr- provide them not only with not only with the the education component, the treatment component, those things, we want to try to get them where when they walk out the door, they've got some, they've got a leg up, if you will, to get out and, and be successful. Now, Tim, we had we've taught literally this week. We have taught new judge training to yes. our eleven newest judges or newest colleagues. Yes, and it turned out great. And we we love them for it. But now. One of the things we realize, Stan, is that we all call a CPO. I, I think if I said CPO, you would understand that Absolutely. to be a court production order. But then we have we have heard everything from a comeback order right. to uh, you know. So other we understand other circuits call them different things. I, but for the I, purpose of the podcast, can we call them CPOs? Is that okay? okay? That's perfect. So that's not the same as. Kirby Smart's get back coach who drags him back to the sidelines during every game, right? No, That's something totally different. different. Okay. Yeah. okay. Uh, All right. All right. So a bunch of our judges ask about CPOs, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more because you know we're going to do another episode dealing with video arraignments. That's correct. That everybody can be on the lookout for. But 
So let's talk about CPO. So okay. when an inmate is brought back to a facility, do you, to a local facility like the, I had, they had they have charges pending in Augusta. Let's say, right. do all inmates go back through Jackson? No, basically what happens with those inmates once we receive the order uh, and and then when they leave they they're relocated uh, quite frankly to a a prison close to the close to the facility and we've done that uh, as a partnership with the local sheriff's offices over the years we'll take them back to that to a facility and then the sheriff's office. Um, most of the time we do transport some directly to prison based on mental health needs or, or things like that or security issues with an inmate. But they're, they're transported back there. The sheriff's office gets those. Once they're finished, they will bring them back to that facility. They're brought back into the system. Now, let me say this. It's, a lot of it is according to how long they're gone. I mean, if they're there for weeks at a time, then, yeah, they may have to go back through the diagnostic uh, process because things can happen, mm -hmm. and we want to make sure, sure we, we cover all that. And so it's really But if it's on. a day or two, more likely than not, they're going back to where they that's, left? That's correct. Okay. So if I, if I were in Cobb County, I need an inmate to come up for a motion for new trial from Reedsville, let's right. say. Tell me, tell me mechanically, basically, how they get from Reedsville to, to me. Okay. Basically what happens, and, and just happen to know your catchment facility, if you will, is actually Jackson. Yes, sir. Georgia Diagnostic Classification Prison. They would be, uh, once that, that order comes in, our offender administration unit would put a busing order in based on the date that they're, they're scheduled to be there. And then that inmate will be put on a bus, brought back up to Jackson, and then the sheriff's office in Cobb County would be notified uh, that they're there, and then they would come and pick that individual up. And we've always been told that 10 days at least is what y'all need. I know y'all have always been great at trying to get us people that we need on right. short notice if there's an emergency, but 10 days is basically yeah. the standard for you? That is, because we don't we don't run busing on a weekend, sure. as you can imagine, so uh, uh, it, that gives us the time we need does the inmate who is the subject of the CPO, the one we need back, mm -hmm. let's say they are in RSAT, let's say they are in mental health treatment, let's say they're in um, GED, GED classes, class, yeah. do they lose their spot in that? Well, again, it's based on how long they're gone. We prefer, uh, especially in RSAT programs or any type of program like that, that they're in treatment, they minimize the amount of time they're gone because they can miss a lot of things. It's such a structured program. And so, um, you know, as we talk about video hearings, for instance, we've been able to, to do some things you know, like arraignments, as you well know, that, that helps offset that and they don't lose their, their space. It's really based on how long they're gone out out the door if they're gone for a week or two weeks that's possible okay. it's it's a really important tip for our judges out there too when you ask for somebody to come back first of all make sure that at the end of whatever that proceeding is you let your sheriff's office know it's okay to send them back to to doc because uh, i i've heard of stories yeah. uh where you know, people, they forget to give an order or forget to tell the sheriff's office what to do with them. And people sit in our jail for a while or certainly usually doesn't happen to Cobb, but but they'll sit in the local jail for a while when they could have gone back to GDC and gotten back or, G, or DOC and gotten back into their programs. And that's that's a great point, because we have had that happen and and and. And you don't know. And you don't know because you mean, it, the DOC I have a clue. No, because what happens is once that sheriff assumes responsibility for that that the county is paying the bill 
yeah. at that point. So right. uh, the more we can make sure that they're accounted for, the better off we are. All right, Stan, one of our judges, and I'm going to let Tane ask this one, one of our judges <laughs> said that they wanted to ask a question that they acknowledge might be a bit touchy. And I told them, well, we would ask, and we would see whether or not you could you could answer it. Tane, why don't you tell them what one of our friends and good, good colleagues asked? Right. That what they wanted to know, they, not Wade and me, what they wanted to know was, does the Department of Corrections, quote unquote, overlook a certain amount of illegal drug usage in order to maintain a sense of order in the prison system? Let me just say this. Contraband of any kind threatens the security of our staff and the inmates in general. And we take all of it very serious. We have a zero tolerance policy about any type of contraband, especially illegal drugs, cell phones, as you know. Uh, that's one of our key things in the prison system uh, is, is dealing with contraband issues. So we have a, no, that is not true. We don't overlook any of it. And uh, if we know about it, we're going to deal with it. Wade and I knew that. We're just asking for a you. friend. <laughs> <laughs> so we have had some cases, and you and I have also had this conversation at some length over lunch, that, that we have had inmates. Wait, y'all have, had lunch? Yeah. yeah. And, and Stan tried to buy. I said, well, <laughs> there's that. Great. Um, inmates end up with access to cell phones Mm -hmm. and internet access such that they could get on Facebook or social media and they would, one of them allegedly, uh, committed, uh, aggressive sexual actions toward a young person, Mm -hmm. um, while they were in prison and while they had a cell phone. Why can't you just jam those signals? Why can't you just turn them off? How do they charge the things? As, as much as we would love to be able to do that, currently it's it's uh, illegal under the FCC rules for us to do that. I mean, any jamming type devices like that is, is, is something that uh, we cannot do. Now, let me say this. We've had commissioner after commissioner that's gone to D.C. and talked to the FCC about the problem along with other commissioners from other states. Uh, And it's a problem. It's a huge problem uh, for security, numerous things that that, that go into play with it. Um, Now, with that being said, uh, I think we do a really good job at monitoring things. Now, while it's it's illegal to jam and do things like that, we do have some technology out there that we can indicate if one's being utilized and we can pinpoint where it's coming from. Then from that point on, we do shakedowns and things like that to to secure those phones. Um, you know, w- when you look at it, we would love to put a blanket over every institution in this state and where no one makes phone calls out except those authorized, which is, you know, the, the staff there. Um, but unfortunately, right now, we can't do that. So. If we have any inmates who are listening to our podcast, <laughs> G- DOC is is coming you. to coming to get you. So there you go. You. All right. So we have heard rumors and gossip about how much time or how little time, whichever way you want to look at it, that if we give somebody a year, you're not coming to get them. If we give them six months, you're not coming to get them. If we give them seven days, you're not coming to get them. But if we give them eight days or one day more than any of those other numbers, then you would then come and get them and they would make their way to Jackson or Coastal and go through the whole process. Is there any truth to that? Actually, we we pick up any prison-bound uh, felony offender that's under a prison sentence, I don't, whatever the length may be. 
okay. that we're bound to pick those up. And now let me say this, if it's eight or 10 days and, you know, like you just gave the example of most likely it would, we would not be able to get those because they would be released first. But for example, if I've given somebody five to do one, they're supposed to do the year in confinement. Mm-hmm. They've already been in the local jail for three months. So ostensibly they're going to get credit, which we're going to talk about uh, also, but they're going to get credit. You know, they've got another nine months or so left on that sentence y'all will come and pick them up we're gonna come and get them well stan you don't know how much we appreciate this because i will tell you that i have learned a little bit today that that i had didn't think that y'all cared what our recommendation was that y'all were gonna run the doc and we're gonna run the courts and then you know do your own thing (laughs) right right um so that's helpful I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to take up some more of your time and record another session here in a few moments, and then we'll publish it out to our friends and our listeners on on the issue of more on court, court production orders and the video or the video hearing system. Absolutely. But for now, thank you, thank you very much, and please thank the commissioner for allowing you to do this. Thank you, and we, we do you. appreciate it very much, Dan. Yeah. I'm Wade Paget. I'm Tame Kell. Thanks for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you, folks, for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This podcast was originally the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Special thanks to the University of Georgia College of Law and specifically Jim Henneberger uh, for their technical assistance and providing the studio for us. Thanks, as always, to Stephen Turner and Turner Up Media, who does his best to get as much of our stupidity as he can. But he can't get it all. We are eternally grateful to CSCJ, the Council of Superior Court Judges, for allowing us to handle NJO and their support in this project. Folks, these are our own opinions. They represent the opinions of Wade Paget and Tane Kell and do not reflect the opinions of the Council of Superior Court Judges, UGA College of Law, ICJE, or really anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at our website at goodjudgepod.com or you can contact us on email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Folks, please rate and review our podcast on whatever listening app you may be using. It'll go a long way to help others find the podcast. So, Tane, I guess we better bang the gavel on this one. Anything else you feel like we need to say? No, that's all, Wade. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.